stuff with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm a senior writer with HowStuffWorks.com, and Tech Stuff is the podcast where we look at all things technological in existence, try to understand how they work and why are they important, or are they no longer important, or were they never important? Today, there's a really important one. And in fact, we've done an episode about this very topic. Back in 2012, Tech Stuff did an episode about the Large Hadron Collider. And a lot has happened in those five years since that podcast. So I thought it would be good to revisit the topic. Plus, some of my coworkers had a chance to chat with some scientists from the LHC at MoogFest 2017. I'm incredibly envious of that. And I'm going to include some excerpts from those interviews in this episode. And they're pretty awesome. So what is the Large Hadron Collider? What is this LHC thing? Well, it's a particle accelerator, which means it uses forces to accelerate subatomic particles to speeds approaching the speed of light. The LHC design allows for two streams to accelerate in opposite directions, each looping around the massive facility millions of times per second until the two beams of particles converge at one of four collision points. There, the particles collide with such force that they annihilate each other, and we look at the reaction to learn more about the fundamental nature of the universe. That's the short version. Now let's dive into a longer one. Now first, what the heck is a hadron? Well, technically, it's a particle that is made up of quarks, antiquarks, and gluons. Uh-oh. Our definition has raised the need for more definitions. All right, so a quark is the sound made by a dirk. I'm just kidding. I stole that joke from a book called Science Made Stupid, which as a kid, I thought was the pinnacle of humor. A quark is actually a family of elementary particles that come in different pairs. So you could have an up quark and a down quark. These paired quarks have a similar mass, but different charges. Quarks are bound by the strong nuclear force, which is the strongest of the four fundamental forces in the universe. And the other three are the weak nuclear force, the electromagnetic force, and gravity. While the strong nuclear force is the strongest of the four fundamental forces, it also operates across the smallest distances. So it's a very strong force, but only at distances that are on the subatomic scale. An antiquark is the antiparticle component of a quark. Ugh. Everything turns into another call for a definition. So an antiparticle is one that is identical to a subatomic particle in mass, but opposite to it in electric and magnetic properties. When these two otherwise identical subatomic particles encounter one another, a particle and its antiparticle, they annihilate each other. If you've heard about matter and antimatter, it's that concept. When our universe formed, for some reason, there was a teensy tiny bit more matter than there was antimatter. If the two had been equal, they would have annihilated each other and we wouldn't have, you know, movie theaters and queso and stars and stuff. So an antiquark is the antiparticle to quarks. But what are gluons? Well, these are neutral, massless particles that are force-carrying particles. Sometimes they are called messenger particles of the strong nuclear force. And there are eight different types of gluons. So your gluons, quarks, and antiquarks are bound together to create certain subatomic particles like protons and neutrons. There are lots of them in every subatomic particle. Like 
a countless number of them. And that number is constantly changing within a proton, for example. There's a shorthand and somewhat misleading statement that protons are made up of two up quarks and one down quark. But that sounds like there's just three quarks in a proton. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are zillions of quarks inside a proton. The shorthand actually means there are two more up quarks than there are up antiquarks, and one more down quark than down antiquarks. So it's sort of a microcosm of a, well, I guess the macrocosm of the cosmos itself. Remember when I said there were, you know, if there were equal amounts, matter and antimatter, everything would be annihilated? Well, there you go. Theoretical physicist Matt Strassler has a great article about this that makes it easier to understand. And in that article, he explains that a proton consists of these uncountable elementary particles with gluons moving around at near the speed of light, sometimes appearing or disappearing. And he says your hydrogen atom, which consists of a relatively stationary proton as the nucleus and a single electron zipping around at speeds far below the speed of light, is a peaceful example of balance compared to what's going on inside of a proton. And then he uses this analogy, which I love so much, I have to quote it directly. He says, in short, atoms are to protons as a pas de deux in a delicate ballet is to a dance floor crowded with drunk 20-somethings bouncing and flailing to a DJ. That, that image really works for me. Particle accelerators like the LHC smash open subatomic particles like protons to study these elementary particles and their behaviors, as well as to suss out the fundamental secrets of the universe. So I started off this whole rabbit hole by asking the question, what is a hadron? Well, hadrons include not only protons, but also neutrons, pion plus articles, kaon plus articles, and other stuff that's more exotic than your basic atomic science class typically covers. The commonality between all of these particles is that they are made up of some combination of quarks, antiquarks, and gluons, and the nature of that combination determines what sort of particles they are, and thus their physical properties. The Large Hadron Collider's mission is to smash these sorts of particles apart violently and at great speeds. All right, so let's look at some history of how the LHC came to be, and then we'll look at how it do what it do. In 1984, the European Committee for Future Accelerators met with CERN to discuss a new particle accelerator facility. And CERN is a an amazing organization. You may recall that Tim Berners-Lee, who is credited as being the father of the World Wide Web, he created that first web page for CERN. He was working for CERN. So CERN has had a very important role in technology for years, and it's gone well outside of just the realm of particle physics. And I can't believe I used the sentence, just the realm of particle physics. So this new facility they started to talk about was a, an idea for a, a new collider. Uh, the event's name itself was the Large Hadron Collider in the LEP Tunnel. That was what they called it, the Large Hadron Collider in the LEP Tunnel. LEP is an acronym for the Large Electron-Positron Collider. I'm sure you know an electron is the negatively charged subatomic particle that typically orbits an atomic nucleus. It's also the basis for electricity, but you've heard me talk about that enough recently, I'm sure. A positron is a subatomic particle that has the same mass as an electron, but has a positive charge, not a negative one. 
The magnitude of that charge is numerically the same as an electron's negative charge, except we're talking positive instead of negative with positrons. It is therefore the antiparticle to an electron. Unlike protons, which are a type of hadron, electrons and positrons are fundamental particles that cannot be split into any smaller particles. They interact through the weak nuclear force, not the strong nuclear force. This puts them in a category of subatomic particles called leptons. This also includes stuff like muons, electron neutrinos, and various antiparticles. The Large Electron-Positron Collider became the largest electron-positron accelerator ever built. Planning for the 27-kilometer circumference tunnel began back in 1983, and construction ended in 1988. Digging the tunnel took three years using three tunnel boring machines. You know, we talked about those in that Elon Musk episode about the Hyperloop and the Boring Company. Those tunnel digging devices are pretty slow. A snail is faster. The LEP itself was commissioned in July 1989 with the first beam circulating on Bastille Day of that year. Uh, That's uh, July 14th, in case you aren't up on your French history. The first collisions allowed scientists to produce and observe Z bosons. So now we have another question. What in the Sam Hill is a boson? Well, at first I thought a boson was a sailor who was in charge of equipment and crew aboard a ship. But as it turns out, that's a boson, which is actually spelled like boatswain. And that has nothing to do with particle physics unless you're talking about very tiny boats. No, a boson is another type of subatomic particle that has a spin that has a quantum number of either zero or an integral number. Does that clear it up? All right, well, this might be more helpful. According to Einstein's work, all particles in existence fall into two broad categories. They are either fermions or they are bosons. This is all based off of math, by the way. Einstein's math only really works if this supposition holds true, and so far it seems to be so. Bosons include particles that can all do the same thing at the same time. For example, a photon is a type of boson. You can make photons line up in a specific direction, in a specific phase, and you can create a laser beam with a precise wavelength of color. All the photons within that laser beam are behaving in the exact same way. Fermions cannot do the same thing in the same place. Electrons are a type of fermion. They cannot orbit an atom in exactly the same way. You can't have two electrons orbiting the atom exactly the same way. Fermions include charged leptons, such as the electrons and positrons I just talked about. Bosons include the force-carrying particles as well as the Higgs particle. More about the Higgs boson in a little bit. Okay, so the Z bosons and the W bosons are responsible for the weak nuclear force. Later, the LEP was souped up so that it could produce pairs of W bosons. For 11 years, scientists used the LEP to learn more about these mysterious particles, producing them in the millions. On November 2nd, 2000, the LEP shut down for the last time to be dismantled. In its place would be the Large Hadron Collider. While the LEP project was still in action, other groups were forming to create the teams and facilities that would be attached to the LHC. One of those was ATLAS, A-T-L-A-S. ATLAS is a detector that captures information from proton-proton collisions. It would become one of four collision detectors along the path of the LHC. It and the CMS detector are the biggest of the experiments running on the Large Hadron Collider. 
There's also ALICE, A-L-I-C-E, and L-H-C-B detectors that look at more specific phenomena. They sit in big caverns along the L-H-C ring underground. But in this timeline we're talking about, they were still just ideas at that point. The LHC itself had not yet been approved, and the LEP was still in operation. The CERN Council would approve the LHC project in December 1994. In October 1995, the project leaders published the LHC Conceptual Design Report, which included the idea of these four detectors and their arrangement around the perimeter of the LHC ring. CMS and ATLAS would both get official approval in January 1997. The following month, ALICE would get the nod. That happened on Valentine's Day. Aw, happy Valentine's Day, ALICE. LHCB would be approved on uh, September 1998. There are other experiments connected to the LHC with scientific instruments that are near the big detectors and that look at specific phenomena. But the four detectors are what most people are familiar with, if they know anything about the LHC, that is. Two years after the LEP shut down, so this would be 2002, the Atlas cavern was completed. Atlas is the largest in volume of all the detectors. I mentioned earlier we had a team of producers meet with scientists who work with the Large Hadron Collider, specifically with the ATLAS project. One of those scientists is Stephen Goldfarb. Here's how he explained ATLAS's role in the LHC. So ATLAS is, is one of four large detectors that sits at the collision points on the Large Hadron Collider. So the Large Hadron Collider brings protons around and accelerates them and has them collide at four different places. You surround those places with detectors. Atlas is, is the largest in, in volume of these detectors. It's about a half of a football field uh, in length, uh, to give you an idea of the size, and packed full of sophisticated equipment. It's one of the most complex devices, I think, ever constructed. About 100, more than 100 million different channels of information come out of this thing. Its role is, if, if you like an analogy, uh, is perhaps the strongest lens on a microscope that's ever been built. It's to look into nature and to try to understand what we're made out of. What are the fundamental components of, of, of matter? And then to understand the rules around that. And we're making some big steps forward, but we still have some major questions to try to answer. Now, we've got a lot more to say about the LHC. But before we dive into the rest of it, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. We're back. Now, these detectors have to capture information coming from a subatomic scale. Those collisions often will create situations that will blip out of existence in just a moment, a fraction of a second. So the measurements have to be not only precise, but also happen faster than I can even imagine. That also means that every observation generates an enormous amount of data. So the challenges with the LHC aren't just with the physics of getting streams of subatomic particles accelerated to near the speed of light and then making them smash together. It's also a lot of sorting and analyzing data to find meaningful information hidden in those collisions. So it's a monumental amount of work. Back to the timeline. The CMS team finished the cavern for their detector in 2005. Two years later, the last of the LHC's superconducting magnets were locked into place. Those would be dipole magnets, and this particular one was dipole magnet number 1,232. 
After each magnet made the journey down through the shaft to the level of the tunnel, 100 feet below the surface, they were loaded into a special vehicle that would take them to their destination at a blistering three kilometers per hour. You had to go super slow so that you don't end up damaging these delicate and enormous pieces of machinery. These magnets are, are huge. The LHC wasn't ready to begin warming up until 2008. At 10.28 a.m., September 10th, 2008, the LHC fired a beam of protons around the ring for the first time. Unfortunately, on September 19th, 2008, a fault in the electrical bus connection between a dipole and a quadrupole caused some mechanical damage and released some liquid helium from the system. This set work on the LHC back by about a year. On April 30th, 2009, the final replacement magnet, the 53rd replacement magnet, was lowered down to complete the repair work from the September 2008 accident. November 2009 saw particle beams again traveling down the LHC path. The LHC conducted collision experiments through November and into December 2009. It then shut down for the winter, which the LHC does every year in order to conserve some energy. And during those first collision experiments, scientists were working with collisions on the scale of 2.36 TeV. TeV stands for Tera Electron Volts. An electron volt is a unit of energy equal to 1.6 times 10 to the power of negative 19 joules. It's equal to the charge of a single electron moving across an electric potential difference of one volt, which, you know, that sounds like a lot. And on a subatomic scale, it is. But to give you an idea of what kind of energy we're talking about, a mosquito flapping its wings is the kinetic energy equivalent of about one tera electron volt. So 2.36 tera electron volts on the macro scale is incredibly tiny. November 2009 also saw one of the stories that got a lot of circulation in the early days of the LHC, which was the system shut down due to a bread-eating bird. Now, the way the story was reported was that the power supply to the LHC got frazzled, and when engineers went to check where these connections might have shorted out to see what the problem was, they found a bird eating bread over a power circuit. Crumbs supposedly caused the problem. According to CERN, however, this wasn't necessarily the problem. It might have contributed to the issue, but they don't really know. The truth of the matter was that the power site, uh, there were some feathers, there was some bread. That was about all they could really say for sure. Power was restored, and the LHC experienced only a minor delay. In February 2010, the LHC began to circulate beams in preparation for more collision experiments in the spring, culminating in two 3.5 tera electron volt proton beams circulating by March 2010. This eventually allowed Atlas to capture information from seven tera electron volt center of mass energy collisions for the first time. Skip ahead to December 2011, when researchers at the LHC had begun to tune into data that could potentially prove the existence of the, at that time, purely hypothetical Higgs boson particle. The Higgs boson is a particle that explains why mass exists, as in why does matter have mass? To dive into more detail about this would require someone far better versed in quantum mechanics than I am. In 2012, on July 4th, Scientists at the CMS and Atlas detectors confirmed the discovery of a particle consistent with the Higgs boson hypothesis. Atlas scientist Kate Shaw talks about that experience. 
So, well, the, the classic story with Atlas uh, is, of course, the discovery of the Higgs boson. So this is really one of our milestone discoveries we've made. And this is a long story of over 50 years, uh, 50 years old. So it began with us trying to describe the universe. Um, there was a big problem where we didn't understand why some particles had mass and other ones didn't. And so some theorists at the time, including Peter Higgs, um, made a prediction uh, of a way that these particles can have mass. And they said, if it's true, then there should be this thing called a Higgs boson. Now, at the time, they said, don't even try to look for this because it's too difficult, it's too rare, you'll never find it, do not invest in you know, accelerators to do this. But 50 years later, we have the technology and the know-how to make uh, these fantastic uh, particle accelerators. And uh, we've been able to uh, find the Higgs boson. We found it in 2012. And that's a fantastic thing um, that these things were, dis were predicted 50 years ago. And only now are we actually able to find and prove these theorists correct. In February 2013, the LHC ended its first run of experiments and shut down to undergo adjustments for more powerful experiments in the future. The estimated downtime was at approximately two years. On June 3, 2015, the LHC came back online, conducting collisions at an energy level of 13 tera electron volts, much greater than any particle accelerator ever before. Now, I've talked about what's going on, generally speaking, with the LHC, but how does it work specifically? For one thing, all those magnets have to be really efficient. To maximize efficiency, the LHC uses liquid helium to cool components to just a hair above absolute zero Kelvin. Zero Kelvin represents zero molecular movement, and molecular movement is essentially heat. So we're talking very, very, very cold here, colder than space even. At that temperature, you can get superconductivity, in which a conductor is perfectly efficient and loses no energy as heat. There's no resistance in a superconductor. This is why power outages are a really big problem for the LHC. The power goes out and the system begins to warm up as liquid helium stop, stops circulating through the system. If it heats up enough, it loses its superconductivity and you have to wait until you've cooled it back down to that hair above absolute zero before you can begin again. They actually use liquid nitrogen to cool it down a certain amount. But liquid nitrogen isn't cold enough, so that's why they have to go to liquid helium after it's been cooled down to a certain threshold. So here's how getting those collisions to happen works. First, you start with some hydrogen atoms. A standard hydrogen atom consists of a single proton and a single electron that's orbiting that proton nucleus. Then you strip the electron away from the hydrogen atom. That leaves you with protons, those positively charged subatomic particles. The protons enter the LINAC2, L-I-N-A-C-2. This is a machine that organizes protons into beams and fires them into an accelerator called the PS booster. The PS booster uses radio frequency cavities to accelerate the protons. So it's an electric field that pushes the protons to increasingly higher speeds. Because you've got a charged particle, you can use the opposite charge to pull the particle toward it or a similar charge to push the particle away. So you just use that to increase the speed of that particle as it travels around this particular part of the accelerator. Magnets are there to make sure the protons stay on the right path. The magnetic fields kind of act as bumper rails for the protons. 
When these beams hit the correct energy level, as determined by the experiment, they pass from the PS booster into another accelerator called the Super Proton Synchrotron, which I was pretty sure was a Decepticon robot in one of those Michael Bay movies. The beams continue to accelerate and the protons separate into bunches. So think of groups of protons traveling a circular path, picking up speed constantly with other packs of protons right in front and right behind them. And each bunch is pretty big. I'm talking 1.1 times 10 to the 11th power of protons with 2,808 bunches per beam. Once this beam hits the next threshold in energy levels, the SPS then injects it into the actual LHC. The beams divide into two. One beam travels around the 27-kilometer circumference clockwise, and the other one goes Wittershins, which, as you all know, is my favorite synonym for counterclockwise. Now, I'll talk more about how this works and what comes out of it in just a second, but first let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, so those two beams, which have already been accelerated through a couple of different prior accelerators before going into the LHC, they enter the LHC, they're going in opposite directions, and after about 20 more minutes of accelerating, at which point the two beams are going just a fraction below the speed of light, powerful magnets aim the bunches to converge at collision points. Now, protons are very very tiny. They are subatomic particles, and it is super challenging to make sure you get two to collide with each other. That's why you have bunches with so many protons per bunch to help make sure that collisions actually happen. As an analogy, imagine that you are inside a an indoor stadium, and you have a super bouncy ball, and you are at one end of a football field. You have a buddy with a super bouncy ball who is standing at the other end of the football field, and both you and your buddy are blindfolded, and you're both told to throw your super bouncy balls where you think the other person is with the aim of having those two balls collide in midair. Will those bouncy balls collide? Probably not. And even this analogy doesn't give you a sense of scale of what we're talking about when we're chatting about protons. This would be this would be incredibly tightly controlled in the proton world if we were to take it at scale. So It's really hard to make sure you get these subatomic particles to collide with one another. The precision of the system coupled with the number of protons helps make sure that there are enough collisions to make the experiment worthwhile. And we're talking on the level of 600 million collisions per second. Upon colliding, protons behave in very interesting ways, sometimes in ways that are hard to get your mind around. Kate Shaw explains. I think there's many concepts in particle physics that I find very difficult to explain. Um, I think one of the things that I think is always vital to communicate and always is difficult is the fact that when we are doing particle collisions in the Large Hadron Collider, um, we're not just colliding protons together and they crash and you see what's inside of them. It's, you know, if you imagine throwing together uh, two you know, bowling balls at high energy, you can imagine they break apart and you can see what's inside of them. But with the Large Hadron Collider, we're colliding things together and the particles annihilate one another. So these particles that are made of mass annihilate one another, turn into energy, and then turn into a different type of mass. Um, And then we study that. So it's like colliding apples together and getting bananas out. So this is always a complicated thing to to explain and a really kind of intrinsic part of what we do. There are some things the LHC might uncover, but hasn't yet. 
such as evidence of extra dimensions or some observable proof of dark matter. In the process of searching for these things, scientists may create some stuff that makes some people unjustifiably nervous, like a micro-black hole. And while the LHC could create a micro-black hole as a result of a high-powered collision, it's not the same sort of cosmic boogeyman that serves as a major plot device in various science fiction films. Stephen Goldfarb explains. Now that got a lot of people very excited. They're going to produce a black hole. Well, a micro-black hole is something which has the energy of a mosquito, and it will always have the energy of a mosquito. And so it's something which will be produced and it will disappear instantly, and we can measure that. So one way that helps to get this concept home to everyone of what we're doing is at very low energy, yet it's something that's, that's interesting, is that Mother Nature, uh, from charged particles produced by the sun colliding with her upper atmosphere, has already done the LHC, all of the collisions that we'll do in the LHC, about 10,000 times before. And things are pretty much okay here on Earth. In July 2017, researchers at the LHC announced that experiments had uncovered a new particle, and it consists of two charm quarks and one up quark, keeping in mind the same rules we mentioned before, that in fact there are zillions of quarks there, but we're talking about the number of quarks that exceed the number of their respective antiparticles. What makes this particular new particle interesting is that it has two so-called heavy quarks, those being the charm quarks. Other particles of the baryon family have, at most, one heavy quark. And there's talk of this new particle giving us a deeper understanding into the nature of the strong nuclear force. The new particle's name is Psi CC++, but I think we should just call it Larry. Before I sign off, I want to talk about some fun, goofy stuff about the LHC, or really about people thinking about the LHC. The black hole story made some people flip out, hypothesizing that the collisions at the LHC could potentially destroy the world and create a black hole that would turn our solar system into a wasteland. There's even a cute little gif that shows the area outside of the Large Hadron Collider suddenly collapsing in on itself. But as Stephen Goldfarb mentioned, that's not realistic. Collisions on the order of what happened at the LHC happen all the time in nature, so there's no reason to fear them here on Earth. If they really were that catastrophic, we never would have made it this far. Earth would have been destroyed long before any advanced life could have evolved. So, that's a relief. But then, there's the other story. This is the one I love because it's so goofy. This was a hypothesis, which may or may not have simply just been a joke that the LHC itself was manipulating time so that it could not be turned on to cause massive amounts of harm. You know, we had that early problem with the LHC in which liquid helium was spreading throughout the system and they had to shut it all down. And then there was the bread being dropped by a bird. The hypothesis said that all of this was evidence of temporal tampering. That some sort of entity from the future, perhaps an agent formed by the LHC itself, was sent back in time to prevent the LHC from ever firing. Though I'd like to think that a future saboteur would be a little more practical than this whole bird-bread story. The LHC has been operating for years now, so clearly if the temporal hooligans were involved at all, they've knocked it off by now. Which is good. There's science to be done. I'm making a note here. 
huge success. As for why some LHC folks were at Moogfest, well, not only is Moogfest concerned about technology and science in addition to music, but you can actually find quite a few bands that have formed at the LHC. There are a lot of musicians who are also scientists or engineers or data analysts, and they have often played together in various groups. So I recommend you check out the LHC music scene, because you might not just learn something, you might also get to boogie down. That wraps it up for this update on the Large Hadron Collider. I would love to hear from you guys about any topics you would like me to cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff. You can always get in touch with me by sending me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle at both of those is techstuffhsw. Remember, I also stream on twitch.tv slash techstuff, so if you want to see me record episodes live, you can tune in on Wednesdays and Fridays, and you'll see me sitting behind a microphone, struggling to get words out, and engaging with the chat room whenever I get an opportunity. We'll chat quite a bit during an episode and, and talk all about sorts of, you know, whether it's about the episode itself or just random stuff. So if you want to be part of the conversation, go to twitch.tv slash techstuff. Check out the schedule. You'll see when I'm streaming live. And I will talk to you guys again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 